Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, May 10th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to answer some long, lingering questions in the mailbag that Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so we haven't done a mailbag episode in a while, and we have a bunch of stuff to get to. So let's um, actually, this one just came in. I didn't even put this on the dock, guys. Uh, ben from Los Angeles writes in. It's this is about um, he says I uh, hi Chris. I guess this is to Chris. Hold on, uh, I know you've mentioned in the past that you've you're open to non movie related questions, so maybe you can help me out with this situation. One of my coworkers is obsessed with giving giving advice. Someone made him an advice-related theme song once, and he now constantly sings it during work meetings. <laughs> during these meetings, uh, when we're all trying to make very important decisions, my coworker always jumps in and says things like, I've got some advice for that, or need a little advice, I'm your guy. So here's my question. How do I get him to give even more advice. He's always right. I just need more. Thanks, Ben from Los Angeles. Did our Ben write this? Ben, did you write this about me? Is that what this letter is? Is this like a secret letter about me? I'm trying to... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That went a a completely different direction. I thought I was going to say, how do I get him to stop? Yeah, that's where I thought this was going. Now I don't know how to answer, because I was all prepared... uh... (laughs) I have no idea how to answer this. Oh. This is just strange, specific question. Yeah. So, so this this Ben from Los Angeles wants his friend to give him more advice. Is that what the question is? Am I understanding this correctly? Uh, um, yeah. I just I just thought it would be funny. It sounds like he wants that. he wants the person to contribute more in meetings and stuff because this is something that's happening at work, right? Yeah. He does seem a little irritated that he's like singing and. Making jokes about advice when important decisions should be. It sounds made. like he's trying to be like his own like like real life talk show host. Like, hey, I got some advice for that. <laughs> like, shut up, Ken. 
Wait, did did Ben? Did you really write this? I'm trying, I'm trying to... <laughs> uh, yes, I really wrote it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Now I don't have to answer this question. <laughs> yeah. How do you answer this? Well, you know, th- this does bring in uh, bring up an interesting topic. We did have life advice corner with Chris, and we haven't done that in a long while, so we have not gotten many emails to that. So. If you want life advice, you know, we don't want to hear about your movies or TV shows. We want, like, you know, your life situations. Chris can answer it on the air on this I podcast. I mean, I'll answer, I'll answer movie stuff, too. I'd probably be better. I'm more qualified to answer that. But I will answer anything you feel like asking. So, yeah. yeah. But I feel like it needs to be more of, like, a life situation. It's like, you know, etiquette while going to the movies or going on a movie day, you know, that kind of stuff more yeah. than like, you know, what is your favorite movie? Cause that's, should I drop out of college? Should I yeah. yell at my parents? You know, that sort of stuff. Ask me, I'll, I'll give you some answers. Yeah. So you can send those in to Peter at slash one.com. That's also where you can send in your questions for the mailbag. So let's actually get into right, the so room. Ben, are you actually annoyed by my life advice? Is that what that, was that like a passive aggressive letter? <laughs> No, I, I wanted it to read that way at first, but then it ends with me saying more. I want more of this. So I was, okay. I'm actually legitimately excited about life life advice with Chris Evangelista. So I just want people to write write in. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. So more life advice. Give Ben what he wants. Write in. Uh, make it happen. Okay. Let's Chris, move on to. I have, I have some life advice for, uh, questions for Chris. Can I ask Chris a question? Sure. Yes. Please do. Wait. Do we have Chris, to play the theme song? Yes, play it right now. Oh, I forgot there was a song. It's Chris's advice corner. It's Chris's advice corner. Hey, advice from Chris. He's got all the advice. <laughs> okay, J- Jacob, ask your question. <laughs> Chris, my chair broke. My very nice, only a year old chair. It's big and cushy and reclines in all different directions. That I used to actually do a lot of work on. I have it at my desk. It broke. It, it, it broke in a reclining position, so I can't even use it as a regular chair now. But I don't know how to who to contact. Do I contact the place I bought it from and try to find a manufacturer? <laughs> I'm too busy to find a way to get my chair fixed. And I'm and I'm I'm recording this podcast standing up, but I have been recording standing for a few weeks now because I'm a broken chair. It's turned over sideways next to my desk. So Chris, <laughs> what do I what do I do? Where wait, do wait, I wait, go? Wait. Where did you get this chair? Where is it from? Wait, wait, wait. Before, before Chris even answers this question, I want to remind Jacob that Chris has unsuccessfully fixed his uh, MacBook at this point. So I'm not it's sure. It's not he's... my fault. <laughs> okay, Chris, you can answer the question. Did you get it from like Amazon or is it from a store? It is from a local store uh, called Austin Couch Potato. And they're, How... they're, very, they're a very good company, but they always buy from outside sources and bring them to you as opposed to make their own stuff. Do they have a, a website? I would go on their website and look up their email or phone number and call them up and be like, hey, this chair is not even – is it's a year old, you said, or it's not a year old? It is about a year old. You know, I, I would I would lie a little and be like, look, this isn't a year old yet, and it broke. What's the deal with your shoddy material? Don't make me write a bad Yelp review. People people really react to that Yelp review stuff. They'll just but respond, I, I, but I there's, like... there's water damage here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I miss my chair, Chris. Just yeah, you got to get them to replace. They should. If it's not a year old, there's no reason it should have broke. You, you should get that, get that sweet free chair action. At the very least, they should send like an old Italian repairman over with like his his work belt 
to put it together. I don't know why he's Italian in this scenario. I just pictured it that way. He's got like a mustache. It's like Mario, basically. I married into an Italian family. I can speak from experience. Italians are handy people. I trust yeah. them to fix things. Yeah, he'll come over with his, you know, he'll, he'll bang it together with his, his mallet. I don't know how you fix chairs. Just call them up. So wait, this is why, outrageous. Why, why, why you, need a, you, you need a chair, Jacob. <laughs> well, you just have your family fix it then. Because they live in Dallas. Oh. Hmm. I'm going to call my father-in-law up and say, hey, come over, spend the weekend, and by the way, fix my chair, father-in-law. You could try I, that. I... I don't know how the roles of father-in-laws work, so. You know, the thing is, the difference, my father-in-law and I get along, but I feel like we're both one mistake away from yelling at each other, as I think it is with all sons and fathers-in-law, so who knows? Yeah. Yeah, maybe not in certain in, in the situation. Okay, let's get into the mailbag proper. We haven't even answered any of the questions actually in the show notes. So let's start off with Jackson from – oh, he doesn't say where he's from. So if you write into the mailbag, you should probably say where you're from so that we don't just call you Jackson. He uh, he writes in asking, for those of you who collect movie art or posters, do you frame your prints in UV glass or anything special to preserve it? Um, I will answer – that question, because I probably have the most framed art out of this group, I think. Um, I just go for the cheap stuff. I used to buy all my frames at Aaron Brothers, and it, it, I rarely pay. You know, I, I just buy stuff off the shelf, which isn't UV glass usually. Um, and uh, that's probably going to come to haunt me later, years later. But um, I usually don't pay for the upcharges, that kind of stuff. Uh, Jacob, I know you have a lot of framed art. Yeah, I'm about 50-50. Depends on the piece, depends on where it's going to go, depends on you know how limited it is. Like, for example, I have the J.C. Richard Lord of the Rings trilogy set, and rather get them all framed individually, I went to a specialty shop and got them all framed together, you know, in like, in like one frame, which you, you know normally can't do by off the shelf. And other things were like, pretty much the deal with me with my wife is that if it's going to be downstairs where we have guests and family over regularly then it needs to be in a nice frame with a mat and needs to be like truly presentable. We usually don't spring for the, for like the fancier glass. Like, I know some places offer museum glass, which looks amazing, but tar- adds like 150 bucks to the cost. So I usually just go for the regular UV glass when I frame normally. But I, the most, most of our stuff though, stuff in my office, stuff upstairs, it's in regular frames, not the cheapest ones imaginable, not, nothing like 20 bucks, but like 50 to $60 frames uh, with, you know, a nicer quality and aren't going to be like falling apart, you know, a few months in. That's what I'll spring for for most of my stuff. But my goal is that over time to eventually spring sort of money to start transferring all my stuff into nicer frames, you know, as money becomes available, you know, as it becomes viable. But I think it just depends on where it is in your house, how important it is to you, how much you're willing to spend. Because, uh, for me, I'd say it's average 100 to 250 bucks per frame job, depending upon the size of it. You know, the mat choice, the frame choice, it, it really does add up. So it just matters. You can be looking at it all day. Your family's going to be looking at it all day. Your friends are going to see it all day. What matters to you? And then make a decision based on that. Yeah. And that price is like a custom frame. So if you're buying a, something off the shelf, it could be anywhere from like, you know, 20 to 50 bucks. But if you're doing custom, it could be in the hundreds. Um, when I do custom stuff, if I have a print that doesn't fit in a, you know, off the shelf frame and I have to order a custom frame, I'll usually go online because it's cheaper. Um, usually to upgrade to UV glass is only a few dollars and that's the case. I will do it at that point. Uh, Brad, I know you have some frame stuff, right? Yeah, definitely. I, uh, in the past few years I've started to collect, uh, 
certain art that interests me and I've, I've got a decent collection going now of stuff and uh, more often than not I go for the cheap stuff to frames that are usually like somewhere between 20 and 30 dollars they, they serve my purposes pretty well I don't ever have my art in a place where like uh, you know it's going to be hit by like sunlight or any dangerous light that's going to damage it or anything like that so um, I'm fine with it and I, I've never really had a problem with uh, the frames that I buy like the they're plastic, you know, and they have, you know, a cheap backing to keep the, the art, you know, in the frame itself. And it's it's usually just like a um, a plastic, not even glass, you know, uh, front. So but they, they serve my purposes pretty well. Um, and I, I like Jacob, I would like to eventually start moving uh, my prints into more expensive framing. But it, they really are just so pricey, especially if it's something that you have to get custom framed. I actually just recently found out I always knew that it was expensive, but I never really... Uh, tried to find out how expensive just because I never really wanted to spend the money on it but um that oh so that actually that uh that Incredibles print that Kitra gave me that she got from D23 yeah well, I, I, I had to get a custom frame for that yeah because it's, it's like 17 by seven and a half inches that's like the weirdest measurements and so uh Michaels just had a sale where they had a coupon for 70 percent off a custom frame job so I went there and got it uh, measure and everything and figure out how much it would cost. And with the 70% off, it was still like $87. So it wasn't bad, but I, I, I got it in a cool like red frame with a yellow mat that goes really well with the Incredibles colors. Um, but without the, without the discount, it was going to be way more. And so, uh, I hate to think how much it would be if I were custom framing any of the, the bigger prints that I have because it was it was extremely expensive. I will say that Michaels is probably one of the more expensive custom frame places. Like I, I'm gonna I'll put some links in the show notes. There's some places online that if you don't care about like, you know, getting a wooden you know, like a elegant looking wooden frame, if like you're okay with having like, you know, a minimalistic uh one inch black bordered frame, you can get custom framing done pretty affordably. Like, you know, I'd say like a third of what you paid there. Brad. Um, Ben, Chris, what are your thoughts on uh, framing? It's framing is way too expensive. I have a lot of art, um, not you know, not nearly as much as Peter or, or I think Jacob, but um, I usually just go I go cheap, you know, not too cheap. Like I, I don't want it to look like crap. I usually go to like Target or I'll order off Amazon. But um, I've reached the point now where if I'm ordering a piece and I see it's like some weird size, like not some easy to find frame size, I usually just don't even order it because it's just a pain in the ass to try and find those, you know, odd sized frames. And it, it's, you know, a really good frame is, is like outrageously expensive to like, I, I went over to a place once to get something framed and it was like one thing. And it, it was like, <laughs> The guy quoted me this out. Like, it was almost like three hundred dollars. I was like, I'm not. No, I'm not paying that. Like, get get away from me. So, <laughs> you know, I, I it's a, it's it's tough. You know, if you want to spend the money, then if you have the money to spend, I guess you should say it, it's probably worth it. So, you know, to protect them and so they look good. But uh, it, it's tough, man. You know, I, I'm also like running out of room, so I don't want to go too too much too much more too crazy. Yeah, same for me. And I, I never even really considered a UV thing as being an option because my apartment is so dark. Um, it doesn't really get a lot of natural light in the places where I've hung stuff up. So I don't really have to worry about that. But that's something for me to consider, you know, if I ever move into a, a different place where the sunlight is different. But uh, yeah, it's a good good thing to think about. But um, 
I think it's like you're going to have to budget for it in a serious way. One other th- interesting thing to mention is a lot of people like that are in the print artwork, the uh, art world will get like these like custom mats, like these big like, you know, th- so the mat is like colored to, re- you know, to showcase the colors in the piece. And I feel like I just avoid that because I want to fit more art in my wall. So I want, you know, to remove less wasted space. But that's what uh, that's how I look at it. But uh, but Jacob, you mentioned you do some matting. Yeah, like I said, it depends on the piece. But I think the right chosen mat can really bring out a, the colors in a piece and really work beautifully. Uh, I will try to take some fresh pictures after we record here of some of my matted work, so you guys can take a look and see how it looks. But like in a, in a, in a living room, for example, where I have you know the J.C. Richard Lord of the Rings, I have. Mondo, um, Iron Giant, and Labyrinth, and some great stuff in Baldneck Gallery, where it's in a, in, a, in a living room area. It's meant to be homey and comfortable. Um, having those mats makes it feel like a home rather than an apartment, if that makes sense. And it maybe sounds a little snobby, but it makes my yeah. entire house feel like it, adults live there in a way that makes um, my mom happy. She always comments on it. So, like, like I said, it just depends on like, how you want your house to feel. And for me, the matting has never gotten in the way of adding more stuff. I've always been pretty good about, you know, tetrising it all together. But like I said, the matting is expensive. It's just a matter of how snobby you want to be about it. But I also find that, like, picking the matte colors and, like, layering two colors together can be really fun and satisfying and really draw your eye to the art in, in really satisfying ways. But as Peter has said, it is not cheap. So it's something I got to consider carefully when, when you make those choices. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Peter Freeman from Gainesville, Virginia. He writes in, after seeing Glass, he began to wonder if there has been a sequel of a movie or a franchise that has been made over a decade or more after the last movie in the series and that has been any good. Some examples of not good include Glass, Incredibles 2, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, uh, the Star Wars prequels, Ghostbusters, uh, Predator, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, the Alien prequels. Uh, I can't think of one that was considered good. I thought maybe the recent Halloween sequel would be that, but that's just under 10 years. So he's putting the question out to us. The thing that immediately hits me is, you know, the Star Wars sequels, the sequel trilogy. Right. And uh, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, Blade Runner 2049. I would say those are two great examples. Also, I just want to come in here and say Alien Covenant is a really good movie. So get out of here with your Alien prequels aren't good thing. (laughs) I'd also like to add that Incredibles 2 is fantastic. So uh, you're wrong also there, Peter. (laughs) Uh, Well, I didn't say that. Oh, the other Peter. Peter. Yeah. Yeah, his name is Peter. Yeah. Uh, Toy Story 3, I think, came out 11 years after Toy Story 2. And then um, the other one that I is sort of like my go to for this question is uh, The Color of Money, which came out 25 years after The Hustler, which uh, Paul Newman played the same character in that in those movies. Also, yeah. I know it gets a little bit of a bad reputation, but I still like it for the most part. The Tron Legacy. I was going to say that as well. I, I really enjoyed Tron Legacy, and I know it's not a great movie but it's had so much good about it like the soundtrack the visuals the story is a little bit lacking but i i still enjoy watching it okay let's move on to michael o from nashville tennessee he writes in uh he's a bit he's not 
He's a big board game fan, but unfortunately, it's hard to get my gaming friends together at one time. Sometimes I find myself craving a board game while everyone else is busy. Can you guys recommend any sort of single-player board game experiences? Uh, I think Jacob and I are the only ones that like are regularly tabletop gamers here, and I haven't really played many uh, solo games. Jacob, do you do you know of any solo games to recommend? I can recommend a few. Uh one thing to consider is that a lot of co-op games, games that are meant to be played you know, cooperatively between groups of friends, are often easy to hack into solo games. Uh, any of them require hidden information, no, but if it means you and you in the game, you working against a game system, you can usually make it work for you solo. Like I played a lot, lots of Arkham Horror solo, the horror-themed game based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft, and I, I can control you know three or four different characters as if fewer people were playing. But enjoy the game solo. Now that's a pretty complex game. It, you know, it's kind of heavy to get into, but I find it's very satisfying to experience that game as a horror movie that you're where you're controlling all the characters and pieces. There's I've haven't played the new edition, the new fourth edition, but the third edition played extremely well. Uh, you, you, solo. you know, now that you mention that, I've done that with Pandemic, and they they also have an iPad version, which makes it you know easier. Yeah, uh, I'd also recommend um, another good horror game because it's all good co-op horror games. Uh, Zombicide. It's a, Brawler S game we control a group of heroes, you know, slaughtering the way through the zombie apocalypse is another really spectacular solo game. In fact, I prefer it solo over a group because with a group you uh, everybody's arguing about where to take the group and, and where to uh, battle the zombies and how to make decisions where you can control your survivors the way you want to in Zombicide. Zombicide's a heavy price point. It's a hundred dollar game, but I bought that game and all the expansions and I still break it out every so often when my, my wife's out of town and I'm gonna, gonna get, wanna get some zombie killing board game action. I would also recommend Scythe, uh, a really, really fantastic alternate history war game that has uh, an alternate rule set that lets you play solo. It's not solo by default, but the, the game comes packaged with rules that lets you modify hang, how things play in order for you to uh, play without anyone else there. And some of the expansions add additional solo rules as well. And I also want to mention that uh, even though it wasn't originally built this way, Star Wars Imperial Assault is, is a game where you and a group of players play as rebel heroes go on a series of missions and in the original base game you would play against one player controls of the imperial forces but they've since added an ipad uh app that will control the the imperial forces for you so you can all play as a team or you by yourself against the ipad which controls all the pieces so like i said i'd research a lot of co-op games and figure out which themes appeal to you which ones will have any hidden information and pick up some of those you know, I haven't played this game, but a lot of people have recommended uh, there's a solo game called Hostage Negotiator, and this is where you play a hostage negotiator who every turn of the game is you having a conversation between, uh, you know, the the person holding the people hostages, and by then, it, it's kind of puzzly. you got to find a way to save the people, basically. But I've heard that has tons of expansions, and I know a lot of people like that game as well. But okay, let's move on. One thing I would oh. say, I'll also recommend just because um, you could probably, if you have trouble rounding up friends to do it, is see if there's like a nearby like gaming cafe where they have like get togethers where people come together and just play a bunch of different games. Because I've been to a couple where you have people that just show up and want to play games and you can just play with complete strangers at those places. That's a good point as well. Um, yeah, I know Austin has at least two or three board game cafes. Every time I go in there, they're packed full of people. And so I would call ahead, you know, to make sure if there are any special nights where, like, you know, where it's like, you know, free come, free serve for anybody who wants to, you know, join a group. Sometimes they host special events like that. 
But uh, in my experience, those places really are very accommodating and want to get your business and therefore want to make sure those solo gamers have a place to go. So I'd Google that and see if it's a place within driving distance and check it out. There's actually a couple apps that are online. Like I think there's like Tabletopia where you can actually play games with people across the Internet in a a virtual setting, but you're not actually using pieces and stuff like that. Okay, um, Mohammed from South Africa writes in that he recently upgraded his home setup with a new 65-inch 4K QLED from Samsung and an Xbox One X. I am a huge supporter of physical media for a couple of reasons, extras, box art, and um, nostalgia. I was hoping to get some suggestions from the team for three must-own slash have 4K Blu-rays to add to my existing uh, collection. I don't have a 4K television, so I'm throwing it to you guys. I'll I'll start. The movie that convinced my wife what 4K was, because she was skeptical about it looking better than Blu-ray, was the Star Wars The Last Jedi Blu-ray. I turned to the fight scene between Kylo Ren, uh, Rey, and the uh, All Snoke's guards, and like within seconds she said, oh, now I get 4K. And it's become my go-to demo disc, that scene in particular, for people who want to see what 4K looks like. Uh, also, the Pacific Rim 4K disc looks incredible. Like, downright jaw-dropping. And I would also uh, throw out the Mad Max Fury Road Blu-ray is also outstanding. But Chris, I'm sure you have things to add here. Uh, yeah, Fury Road is a great one. Um, Blade Runner 2049 looks incredible. Uh, there's a really recent one is um, Alien. The first Alien just got a 4K disc, and uh, I just watched that, and that looks probably like the best I've ever seen it. You know, I've seen that movie uh, you know half a dozen times, maybe more. But this 4K transfer looks phenomenal. Um, also, the the new 4K or new-ish 4K of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think, is, is a must-have. That looks uh, incredible as well. Oh, also, the, the new 4K uh, Jurassic Park release from, I think, last year uh, is a really amazing example of 4K doing justice to a film that was made, you know, before the 2000s. Like, any film made after 2000 is going to look pretty – is going to look good by default in 4K. Whereas the Jurassic Park one, it's done with a lot of care, and a movie looks timeless, and you can see a lot of detail you never noticed before. So Jurassic Park holds up, especially in 4K. And Ben, you recently got a 4K television, right? I did, but I haven't bought the uh, a 4K player yet uh, for for physical media discs. So I've just been streaming content through 4K, you know, like uh, through Amazon or um, Netflix or whatever. So I I need to actually. Um, I'll probably actually at this point just like wait until Christmas or something um, and just put that on a, a Christmas list. But yeah, I've, I've really like one of the ones that I've been itching to see um, is the a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I feel like that would look incredible in, on a 4K disc. Yeah, I, I've, heard, I've heard Mad Max Fury Road as well. Uh, ben, have you noticed any differences with the streaming services and how good the 4K is? Um, yeah, I mean, oh, God, yes, it looks incredible. Yeah, and I, I was surprised. I mean, because... not, not like a is it better than normal, but like, is there like a service, like this Netflix do it better than Amazon, oh, oh, like oh, that kind um, of thing? Or do you, you just can't tell? Um, yeah, in terms of quality, it seems pretty consistent across the board. Uh, obviously some have, you know, more options than others. Amazon actually seems to have a lot of 4k options. Um, and Netflix has some stuff, but maybe not as much as I want. It's so it's sort of like most of the modern stuff is, is available in like all of the all of Netflix's new shows and stuff like that are but if you go back you know a few years it's like they're it's clear they're still catching up and and, you know trying to 
um, reformat things and, and all that. Yeah, I just want to point out that um, the 4K version of The Hateful Eight streaming in episodes on Netflix right now looks incredible. Like, I was bowled over by how good it looks. So I think it depends on the film, but when Netflix has the right 4K file, more or less, it, it is extremely satisfying, but it's a little hit and miss right now, as Ben said. Okay, uh... Paul Toms from London writes in, uh, he's been listening to all our Avengers Endgame coverage and loving it, and we were talking about how Captain Marvel was overpowered. Uh, He he writes in that basically um, he thinks there's an easy solution for her being uh, to fixing that problem. As with the recent comics, with Carol's long and uh, often confusing history, you can introduce a character like Rogue, someone who can drain her ability. The recent Captain Marvel comic book run has seen this happen, and the two characters have a long and complicated backstory. Uh, side idea of mutants and then X-Men. Just a thought. Uh, the other point about the time it took Carol to turn up in battle in, of upstate New York it only takes her a few minutes once Thanos' army and ship th- shows up. If she's got to get there from the other side of the galaxy, I think we can give her 10 minutes. Um, so I guess, Jacob, I'm asking you, like, do you think like we'll see something like that? Like some kind of character, maybe even Rogue from the X-Men, introduced to to disable her in some way? That works better in a comic book form than in a movie. I think audiences would feel cheated if a powerful character like lost their power like that in part of an ongoing film series. My honest uh, thought on this is let, wouldn't, wouldn't be to drain her of her powers, but just find unique ways to utilize her. I mean, for example, uh, when the Justice League is fighting somebody in the comics, you know, Superman could do it all by himself, so the writer and the artist have to find a way to make sure Superman is occupied. Like, for example, Superman's fighting the main forces, Batman's sneaking in on the back to disarm the bomb. So I feel I feel like they need to just create the right kinds of scenarios in which she makes sense as part of the team, as opposed to draining her power. I think, that, to me, that is a more satisfying solution. Yeah. Uh, Jim F. writes in uh, that it strikes him that it is a very different way to view the introduction of the multiverse into the MCU in response to us talking about Spider, uh, the new Spider-Man movie and how they're introducing the multiverse. Uh, yes, it could be it could provide a simple way of introducing the X-Men or Fantastic Four, but it also provides an easy way to wrap up the Sony Marvel contract. Instead of just forgetting about Spider-Man or killing him off when the partnership between the two studios ends, they could easily have Peter Parker head off into another dimension. That dimension, of course, would be the same one that the Venom movies take place in, as well as the other rumored you know, Sony Spider-Verse projects. Uh, do, do we think that that's a possibility? That, you know, after this, you know, after Far From Home and that third movie that we know is probably going to happen, do you think this version of Peter Parker could end up in, a, you know, not the 616, but a, a different Spider-Man universe that's owned by Sony? It would be a clever way to do it, but it would piss me the fuck off, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think that they, they created this idea for that. Like, I don't think Marvel was worried about that, but... I mean, yeah, it could work, right? It, it, it could explain – I mean, it explains everything. It explains why the X-Men were off in their own universe. It explains, uh, you know, all this stuff going on with the Spider-Verse. Uh, one thing I didn't talk about when we were talking about this, like, not that it's ever going to happen, but how cool would it be if the characters from, like, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse could somehow jump into the MCU? Probably unlikely, though, right? 
What, like Roger Rabbit style? Yeah, I don't like... know. I don't know how it'd work. I mean, I guess maybe some of them could transform into live action counterparts like Miles. But yeah, I don't think you'd see Spider Ham. Yeah, Spider Ham would have to be Roger Rabbit. I, I, I guess we're probably most... not. I was just going to say the thing that makes the most sense for that uh, to me is like for those characters to show up in a uh, one of the episodes of that What If show that yeah. you were talking about because that's supposed to be animated. So theoretically, you know, it, it might not be as much of a clash in styles yeah, yeah. Um, if they were to show up there. Or maybe maybe Peter Parker could jump into the Spider-Verse, like the version of the MCU Peter Parker could jump into right. Spider-Verse in the animated series. Yeah, that would be, be cool. Yeah. Okay, um, Michael from Casey wrote us a long email, and this is like one of the better written emails that we've ever received. I cannot read the whole thing on the air, but um, he's super fascinated by, quote, how it seems that from a film criticism perspective, the MCU defies easy classification, dissection, and critique. I think that in the future, it's likely we will look back at this run of films and not only not only as genre-defying, but medium media medium defying beyond the current it's just movies as tv episodes kind of thought um he goes on in depth here which i I can't get into but the one thing i did want to bring up here is he brings up one other aspect that i haven't seen touched upon that much is the subconscious impact that i think the mcu has had on public perception of masculinity and antiquated macho ideals no real data here but after i noticed some cracks appearing with the force awakens you know hans grown man tear inducing chewy we're home uh we now seem to live in america where it's open where openly weeping in a movie theater not only evades ridicule but is accepted and even championed as a healthy and uh, collective experience. As a boy, I was certainly raised in a climate that discouraged any public display of perceived weakness. How common is the experience of a kid being stigmatized for crying? The freedom to be so uh, connected to one's emotions that tears of joy, shock, grief, and just pure awe arrive unrestrained is freeing. And to me, has been considered a progressive moment for our culture. Uh, and he, he goes on to basically applaud the Marvel films for uh, being responsible for this. Like, I, I definitely have noticed this. I You know, in my, my first tweet reaction of Endgame, I, I mentioned that I, you know, teared up, you know, <laughs> five or six times during during that movie. And I, I really expected to be ridiculed. And I, I only got a couple comments, um, which I think, you know, if I had made that tweet even five years ago, I think it would have gotten a much different response uh jacob i what, what do you think is responsible do you think the mcu has something to credit here i think the mcu uh is a really good example of a shift in culture whereas i think that a, a lot of people especially younger men are growing up you know well, i'll put it bluntly respecting women a lot more because women are being um dropping silent they're being very upfront about about how we should be treating others and men are realizing that you know their softer side is not a weakness, and I, you know, I was raised by a single mom. You know, I, I didn't have that a macho figure in my life to, to, to teach me all the wrong lessons, thankfully. And every day, I always wonder, you know, what if my my father, who I haven't spoken to in years and years and years, who was a very macho guy uh, and was very much in a very much different person than I am and my mom was, 
how how he would have reacted to me crying over superheroes and he wouldn't have liked it he would have been mad about it but i think that we, we we've approached a generation that is in, in touch with their feelings in a in a way that allows them to feel okay doing this I mean, and i certainly hope that's the case I mean, it makes you feel better about the future i mean we're always going to have the assholes and the people who you know think this is all childish but i, I think that art art of any kind whether it's pop art or you know art house art from another nation if that if that's touching you in some way and causing you to cry it's doing its job and we're, we're connecting with art in a way that we're supposed to be so uh but i want to hear from chris because i don't think chris cried at endgame but i know he cries at movies because he's a real man so i cry all the time i'm crying right now in fact um I no, I I've never had uh, a problem crying, you know, uh, hiding my my feelings like that. Um, you know, I, I do think there is that that stigma, you know, even though it's better now than it's been. You know, I still think there's like an entire generation. And I also think it, it depends on, you know, where you live and, you know, who you grow up with and all that stuff where, you know, you know, toxic masculinity is not going away in a lot of cases it seems worse than ever for some reason which i don't quite understand i you know i remember when i was in high school i had this naive thought that you know uh, as i get older this this quote-unquote terrible older toxic generation will will die out and a more uh progressive nuanced generation will take over and sadly it's it's somehow become the complete opposite where uh, the toxic voices have, have just even grown louder. Um, but I don't know, like, you know, my father, I wouldn't say my father was very uh, in touch with his emotions. He was kind of emotionless, I guess you could say, but he wasn't like cruel. He wasn't, a, you know, a hard uh, man's man, I guess. So I guess that way I never was instilled with I, this idea that it was wrong to show emotion. Um uh, you know, so I really think it's just all, it depends on where you come from and your background and who's who's instilling certain things in you. Uh, I, I think it's it's healthy to let emotions out. There's nothing worse than bottling emotions up to uh, take it from me, folks. It'll it'll eventually boil <laughs> over and uh, explode in terrible ways. So I wish more people would feel open about this. And I wish I don't know. I wish things would change for the better. I don't know if they ever will. And it's depressing to think about. And now I'm going to cry about that. So, um, You know, th this letter mentions that some critics peg this whole thing as, you know, just being suspended childhood. Um, but, you know, I do think there is some progression here. I, I think a few years ago, the only time you saw people in public admitting or, you know, men in public admitting that they cried during a movie was maybe during a Pixar film. Like, that was, like, the only kind of acceptable place. Um, ben, Brad, I, I'm curious what you, you have to say about this topic. I am not sure that... Well, okay, so I feel like the MCU has, has done a little bit of work, but I think it's more, like, the culture, the uh, the pop culture landscape as a whole, um, instead of just laying this all at the feet of the MCU as like the the specific reason that some of this is becoming more acceptable. Um, I agree with everything that everybody else has said. I mean, obviously, this is like a good thing overall, the idea that people are showing emotions and, and you know, being in touch with that side of yourself um, and, and allowing and not bottling things up. But I, I'm not sure that I'm ready to point to the MCU as like, the ideal standard in, in pop culture for 
for waving that particular flag. I think they're heading in the right direction. And I think the MCU in, you know, 10 years from now might is going to be way more progressive than it already is because, you know, it, it took them a long time. You can hear HT was actually just a guest on uh, a bonus episode of the Slash Filmcast where she talked a lot about the uh, Endgame's representation of women and how that film dealt with women. And I, I think um, there were a lot of interesting points there. So if you want more, uh, especially, especially since this episode is a bunch of dudes sitting around <laughs> talking, if you want a female perspective, listen to that episode. Um, but they made some good points there about how it, you know, it took uh, Marvel Studios a long time to get to the point where they had their first female led superhero movie or, um, you know, the the first uh, black lead superhero film that, of the MCU. I mean, obviously Blade was in the late 90s, but um you know, th- there's there's still a long way to go, and I think the the signs of what we've heard are coming in the MCU are encouraging, and I think that will have a pos- a net positive effect on society as we go forward. But as of right now, I think, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm willing to give them like a golf clap, and that's about it in terms of like what they've done for for the culture for this aspect of the culture. But uh, Brad, what do you think? Yeah, I, if anything, I feel like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of more of a product of just how storytelling in general has progressed especially when it comes to genre storytelling and i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that in a variety of different uh media this kind of storytelling is has been start taken more seriously and comes with a lot more weight um and i think that because of the rise of popularity in what used to be you know geek culture and nerd culture something that was much more niche uh becoming more mainstream becoming more popular has allowed people to feel more secure and okay and comfortable with showing how much emotion and connection they have with these characters and because of that we're we're seeing a lot of different uh you know properties expand you know diversity and connecting uh with audiences in a different way and really making these stories feel even more personal than they used to years ago um you know you can see that with superhero movies especially there you know there's a huge change between the kind of the emotions and the dramatic mindset of superhero movies today as opposed to superhero movies from the uh, 80s and 90s, you know, the early Superman, the early Batman. And so I, I think that it's really just a, a general change in pop culture overall in how we receive and latch on to these stories. Yeah, no, I, I agree with what everybody's saying here. I I mean, you know, as much as I was a an emotional mess during Endgame, if I look back at the 22 films that, preceded that i i can only think of one or two times i maybe cried uh during those so i don't feel like i mean maybe a hit with a big hammer um pun intended uh with with <laughs> end game uh but i i don't think marvel is to be credited as a whole i think it, it, this is a big thing that's happened i i think it's just a it, it's a combination of what you're saying brad but it's also a combination of i think it's we're like this whole new generation that is willing to, you know, get emotional. Like it, it's a more emotional generation, I think. Like especially millennials. Um, I think, uh, you know, we grew up on all these like these pop culture things, and we were the first generation to I think take those things seriously. And now that we're seeing them on the big screen, you know, it's there. We're we're at a point where people like Christopher Nolan are making, you know, these big, you know, genre sci-fi, you know, comic book movies that like have emotional impact. 
And I, I think it's just a combination of all that. But, um, okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. Uh, if you want to send a letter to the mailbag, you can send your letter to peter at Uh This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday.